like you to do me a favor if you would turn to the person next to you or near you and say hello neighbor <laughs> all right while you're doing that I'll get some things ready so um, we have some special neighbors with us this weekend it's Veterans Day so I'd like to ask all of our veterans that are active military would you stand and can we give it up for them I, uh, as uh, parents of a Marine, we are very appreciative of our veterans and active military, and as the saying goes, freedom is not free, is it? So thank you for your service. Now, how many of you grew up on or raised your children on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? Let me see your hands. Wow, look at that. You know, my kids watched Mr. Rogers and I never understood why. <laughs> I am not a fan, to be really honest with you. I mean, first of all, the, and it's not that I'm fashionable, but the ugly sweaters, <laughs> right? And the silly songs, and then um, the scary puppets. I'm an adult, and those things scare me. And the trolley and make-believe, and Mr. Rogers always has a smile, and he always seems so calm. I want to know what he's on. <laughs> but you know, we're kind of glad our kids watch Mr. Rogers because it really, it really helped them and reinforced what we're trying to teach them about being good to others and valuing others and caring about others, which is so important these days, wouldn't you agree? So what does it really mean to be a good neighbor? I want to start to answer that question by telling you about a mountain called K2. 
Now, Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. K2 is the second tallest mountain in the world. It's found in Pakistan. But it is the most dangerous mountain in the world for climbing. One out of four climbers who try to summit die on K2. That's dangerous. It's not good odds. And on, in August of 2008, 11 climbers perished on K2. It is the worst mountain climbing disaster in mountain climbing history to date. Now, I know people die on Everest and other mountains, but more on K2 in terms of, of how dangerous it is. It is the most dangerous mountain to climb. And what happened, and the facts aren't real clear because there aren't that many survivors, and they can't be everywhere at once. But we know is that they began their summit, the last part of the climb, rather late in the day. They should have started out sooner. Many of them reached the summit, but when they started descending, it was turning dark. And evidently, a sheet of ice on the overhang near the summit had broken off and severed the the ropes that they needed to get down, which meant they were having to use their ice picks and they were having to use the tips of their cleats like coming down a wall. So you can imagine everything that went wrong. Of those that eventually perished, three were Korean climbers. They were kind of tethered together as they were making their way down, and when they came tumbling down the mountain, whether it was a sheet of ice that took them or just losing their grip, they were, they were exhausted, the climbers were exhausted and tired. When they came tumbling down, their, their ropes they were connected with caught on, on um, an, uh, like an outcropping for the mountain, a piece of rock. And it left one of them literally dangling in the air. The other two just laying on the side of the mountain. They were severely injured. All the climbers had to spend the entire night on K2. Just got too dark, too dangerous. That in itself uh, was already, you know, the making some tragedy because you got to stay awake all night, you're going to freeze to death. So you can imagine how horrendous this whole thing is. When dawn finally came, those who survived started descending down the mountain. One of them made his way down and on his way down, climbed right down next to the Koreans. But he didn't stop. He looked at the situation, realized how bad it was, and took an extra pair of mittens that he had because one of them was missing his mittens, can you imagine? And he handed it to the guy and just said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with snow blindness. I can't help you. And he made his way down eventually to safety. A little while later, an Italian climber came down the mountain he actually stopped for a little bit to assess the situation, saw how, how badly they were injured, and then say goodbye to them. Made his way down. You see, there's this unwritten code among the elite climbers that goes something like this. That if you come across somebody who's injured, and their injury is, is life-threatening, and if you stay and help them, you are probably going to lose your life. You just pass them by. They understand it, you understand it. You just keep on moving. As I watched that, as Marsh and I watched that together, 
the question that kept going through my mind is, now what if I was one of those who survived and I was making my way down and I came across those Korean men who are so severely injured, would I actually stop and try to rescue them? Would you? Knowing it may cost you your life, would you do it? What would you do? That's kind of a, a, a question that a religious expert asked Jesus one day. And I want you to look at a story with me in a creative way today. So if you turn to Luke chapter 10, those of you joining us online, we welcome you and ask you to turn there as well. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to begin reading at about verse 25. This religious expert comes to Jesus. He asks him a question. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to save myself? I mean, that's kind of the question these guys coming down the mountain were wrestling with, wasn't it? Do I save myself? <laughs> what must I do to save myself? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned the question right back to the questioner. And he said, you're an expert in the law. You tell me, what do you think? It says in verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it, Mr. Expert in the law? You tell me, what do you think? And the man responds, and he says in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you need to understand that what that means is this, literally. Love God all the time with the same passion and love your neighbor all the time with the same passion that you would want somebody to love you. And Jesus said to him, you answer correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you'll save yourself. Do this and you will have eternal life. Have you ever, first of all, how many of you Besides me, talk to yourself a little bit, right? Out loud. <laughs> Have you ever asked yourself or asked somebody a question and then answered your own question and not liked your own answer? That's what happens to this guy. He asks Jesus a question. Jesus says, well, what do you think the answer is? He gives the answer. Jesus says, you're right. And then he doesn't like his own answer. And what upsets me or intrigues me in <clears throat> this man is that he's not upset about the God part. Somehow, he was self-righteousness, self-righteousness, <laughs> self-righteous enough. You'd think after three times I'd have this down by now. He was self-righteous enough that he thought to himself, uh, I think I love God enough. That's scary. But what he wasn't sure about was, was his neighbor. He says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And contextually, here's his issue. You're not asking me to love the kind of people you love, are you, Jesus? I mean, you love some really weird people. You love, you love tax collectors, and you love thieves, and prostitutes, and the riffraff of life. The very kinds of people we avoid so we'll get into heaven. You're, you're not suggesting that they are our neighbors, are you? And then Jesus 
responds to him by telling one of his most famous stories. I think the most famous story of all that Jesus told was the prodigal son, a parable. It's a made-up, fictional story to prove a truth. The second one is the one we're looking at this weekend, and that is what is commonly called the parable of the good Samaritan. Although it's no place in the text that it really says good. It says the Samaritan comes along. How many of you know the Good Samaritan story? See your hands. Of course, we all know it, right? Everybody's heard it. Don't even have to be a follower of Christ you've heard about the Good Samaritan. And that's the problem. A lot of times when you know a story well, you tend to miss its meaning. And I suspect there are some of us here this weekend that think we know the story well, but we really don't. Be careful, it may sneak up on you today. Let's, let's see how well you know the story. First of all, it's fictional, all right? Jesus makes it up. But it's based on, it's based on true happenings. In other words, the, the setting of it, the characters in it are just like real people and, and the real setting in that day. So you got to kind of keep that in mind as you think about it. All right, back to the story. Jesus said one day there was a certain man who was coming down from Jerusalem and he's going down to the bottom of the earth, so to speak, the lowest place on earth, the Dead Sea, way down there, a little town called Jericho. Now, we're not told who the certain man is, what his name is, what he's all about, but what we do know about him is this. He's probably a Jew. Contextually, all the scholars agree, Jewish man. He's making his way down, and he's going down what is known as the Wadi Kilt. Now, the Wadi Kilt is just, it's, it's a snake path. Now, Marsha and I have been on parts of the Wadi Kilt. It is like walking through lunar territory. It is just like walking on the moon, rocky and dry and arid. And in some places, it's so narrow, and in other places, it's like really, really wide. And it's just snakes back and forth, in and out of the canyon. But that's not what makes it so dangerous. What makes it so dangerous is the fact that you have brigands, thieves, who will hide behind large croppings of rocks, waiting for a vulnerable traveler to come along. If they think they can take him or her, if a woman's foolish enough to travel by herself, they'll mug them, they'll mug them. To this very day, even though it's only used by Bedouins because it's a beautiful highway that goes from Jericho up to Jerusalem, Thievery still happens there. In fact, when we walked it years ago, we were told, be careful, go as a group. It only goes so far. You never know. So this guy comes walking down, and he's jumped by these thieves, and they take everything from him. I mean everything. They took his clothes, and he left, and they left him lying there naked. And Jesus says, half dead. So the situation is, who's going to rescue him? Who's going to rescue this guy? Well, good news, folks. The preacher's coming. There's a priest coming down from Jerusalem, Jesus says. And even though we're not told this, we do know in the day that they had some money and they would often ride donkeys, wouldn't walk on a journey like that, kind of prestigious. So they get on their donkey and he'd be riding his way down and you're just sure a priest is going to stop. We expect the pastor to stop, get out of the car, get out the donkey, help the poor guy. Well, he stops, but he doesn't get down. Because according to the code, if this guy is dead, he sure looks like he's dead, he's unclean. 
And so if the priest touches them, then the priest will become unclean. And if the priest becomes unclean, he's got to go all the way back up Jerusalem. He's got to spend some extra money to buy the right sacrifice. He's got to go through several days of ceremony and be purified again. And then he has to deal with all of his peers. It's a little bit embarrassing. Hey, Aaron, what happened to you? I thought you were going home. Why are you back here? Oh, you touched something unclean. What's wrong with you? Don't you know it's unclean? But humiliating. And he's sure that somebody else is going to come along. Less qualified to do this. So what does he do? Makes his way around and moves on down. He's going home to Jericho. He'd been serving up in Jerusalem. Well, fortunately, somebody else does come along. A Levite. A Levite was like a temple assistant. The requirements for them were not as stringent as it was for the priest. Jesus doesn't tell us a lot about the Levite. He's probably not riding a donkey. He's walking. And he sees the man, and just like the priest, he too makes his way around. He doesn't stop. And the question becomes, why doesn't he stop? We're not told, but you can imagine it. Put yourself in his place. I mean, one of the things is, if you stop, and there are still bandits hiding in the rocks, and you start taking care of this guy, you've got your back exposed. You're likely to get jumped. And you're in trouble. I don't know exactly why he didn't stop, but he kept moving along. Now, at this point, the the religious expert would not have a big problem with the situation. Because the priest and the Levite are kind of behaving the way he would behave. He doesn't feel bad about that. It's just the way it is. Tough break for the guy on the, on the ground. But, you know, we're religious type. We've got to keep ourselves pure. we got to keep ourselves clean. Somebody else come along. And I love what it says over here when you get to verse 33. It's just three words. B-U-T. But... And whenever you see that word, but, in the scriptures, watch out. But a rescuer comes along, a savior comes along. It is, ta-da, the Samaritan. Scum of the earth, heretic, half-breed Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. You expect the Samaritan to either just ride his donkey past or ride his donkey over or get down off his donkey, pick the guy up and throw him over the edge. Got rid of another one. That's what you expect. But the Samaritan does the exact opposite of what you expect. He stops. He gets off his donkey, exposes his back to whatever dangers may be around, checks on the guy, realizes the guy isn't dead, and starts to minister to him. In his satchel, he had some wine. So he takes the wine, and he begins to pour it on the wounds of the victim. Served as antiseptic. Began helping the healing process, kill the germs. Then he takes a, a bottle of oil, it would have been olive oil, and he begins to put the olive oil on the wounds to soften the wounds in that dry, hot climate. 
But to do something else, you know, Psalm 23, when David says, you anoint my head, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, it's a picture of what the shepherd did with the sheep. They would take oil and pour it over the head of the sheep to keep the bugs out of their ears and out of their nostrils and out of their eyes because the, the bugs just can't attach themselves with the oil there. So he puts oil over the wounds so that the bugs can't get in there and lay their larvae, and that leads to all kinds of infection problems. And he takes bandages, and I doubt he carried bandages with him, so I'm guessing he would have ripped some of his own clothes. And he takes those bandages, and he lays the bandages over and around the wounds. And he picks the guy up, and he puts him on his donkey. Hey, can you just imagine it in your mind? The guy's kind of hanging over on the donkey. And he takes him all the way down to Jericho, and Jericho is a Jewish town. So you've got a Samaritan leading a donkey with a Jew on it who's been badly beaten into a Jewish town. What is everybody going to think? Talk about strange looks. Talk about snarls and growls. Back then they practiced blood vengeance, which simply meant or means you get even, somebody hurts you, you hurt them, they kill you, you kill them. I, could, I mean, it would be easy for a mob to collect quickly or a group of men to collect quickly and say, you know what? Somebody like him probably did that. His own people probably did that to our, one of ours. There he is. Let's, let's take him and beat him now. Huge risk. And he goes straight to the inn, and he comes up to the innkeeper, and he says, look, this guy's been beaten. Would you please take care of him? I'll pay for his room. I'll pay for his meals. I'll pay for whatever medication you have, whatever it takes, I'm covering this. And I'll take the risk, I'll come back, and if there's still money owing, I'll pay for it. Now, he's never talked to the guy. They've had no conversation. I'll do all that for him. It's outlandish if you think about it. And then Jesus looks at the religious expert, story ended, and says, so, look what it says here. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied. See, this guy keeps answering himself. (laughs) And he says, the one who had mercy on him. Now put it together. His first question to Jesus is, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus has taken him all the way through and giving him the last answer, which is, what must I do to have eternal life? Show mercy on others. Whoever happens to be or comes across the path I'm on. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, because I would be, that sounds like you can earn eternal life. You can earn salvation. Is that what Jesus is saying? No one, yes. <laughs> Who we mean? No one, yes. Let's explore it a little bit. First of all, let me ask you this question. Who's the guy on the side of the road? Who is he? Or may I ask, who is she? Because you know who it is. It's you. It's me. In the context of the gospel. All of us are lying there, not half dead, but dead in our sins and trespasses, the Bible says. We deserve judgment and condemnation. There are none who are righteous. All our righteousness is filthy rags. I mean, just read the scriptures. It's pretty clear. We are like dead to God because of our sin. 
Evil has robbed us. Sin has robbed us of eternal life, of hope. And what we need is a savior. But the law and, the, and religion doesn't save us. It literally condemns us. It passes us by. We need a savior that can breathe life into us, that can raise us from the dead. Who is the Samaritan ultimately in this story? Who is the good Samaritan? You know, there's a rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, and he said to him, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus responded to him and says, what do you mean by good? There's only one who is good. Only God is good. Do you know who you're talking to? So who is the good Samaritan in this story? The good Samaritan in the story is who? It's Jesus. If anybody had a right to ride by and do nothing, it was Jesus. He's perfect. We're condemned. We're the creator. He's the creator. We're the rebellious creation. But he dismounts glory, Paul says. He left his place in glory in Philippians. And he bends down to us in human flesh, right? And he picks us up. And he pours over our wounds his cleansing, deep red blood. There can be no remission of sins. There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood in the Old Testament animals, in the New Testament, the Son of God. By his stripes, we are healed. Pours out his mercy on our wounds. And he bandages us with his grace. And then he pays off the debt totally so that there's no debt owing on our lives. He satisfies the Father. He becomes us to the Father, takes our condemnation so we can become him to the Father and receive being accepted by God's grace. Now listen carefully. Unless Unless you experience, unless I experience this unmerited grace, favor, and mercy of God in my life, in your life, we'll never know what it means to love God. Have you ever thought about this? You can't love without first experiencing being loved. I don't know how to love God, and I don't know how to love you till I experience God loving me. And what we become are, are channels for God. We become conduits, we become vessels then. After I experience the love and mercy and forgiveness of God, it causes me, one, to worship and love God properly. He accepts my love and mercy, though it's, or my love and uh, devotion and worship, though it's not perfect because he's accepted me in Christ. But listen, he also allows me then to channel his love, so to speak. I know it sounded new agey, didn't it? But he allows me to channel his love, become a vehicle, a vessel of his love to you, horizontally. Listen, this story and the gospel, you gotta take it in the context of all the gospels, is not an encouragement to us to just be good neighbors to good people. Pagans can do that. It's easy to say hi to your 
neighbor in the cubicle next to you at work or in the office next to you or at the gym or the students sitting next to you in the classroom, your teacher or your coach or the neighbors in your neighborhood, when they say hi to you and they're nice to you and they go out of their way for you and they sacrifice for you and they love you, it's easy to love somebody who loves you. It's easy to be generous to somebody who's generous to you. It's easy to be kind to somebody who's kind to you. That's not hard to do. What is really hard to do, though, is to love somebody when you know if you were laying there, they'd pass you by or pick you up and throw you off. They're called your enemies. And Jesus says that's what makes us different from the rest of the world. We love our enemies. But you cannot love your enemy until you realize that you are an enemy of God and he still chose to love you. And you cannot love your enemy if you try to love your enemy in your own strength because you can't. I know I can't. I have to let God love them through me. Does mean you have to be best pals to people who abuse you or hurt you? You got to go make a phone call, got to stand in front of them. Some situations you got to stay out, stay away from, so you don't need to come and talk to me about that afterwards. But what you do need to do is pray for them to experience the love of God. Say, I can't do that. I know you can't. I agree you can't, but God can. And God can use your lips, and God can use your voice, and God can change your heart. Say, well, I got some room to grow in that. Join the crowd. We all do. We all do. So who's your neighbor? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we humble ourselves before you. And we would, at least I would admit to you, Lord, that I've got some work to do on neighbors. I've got, I've got work to do, Lord, on loving the people around me, strangers, whoever they are, Lord, that, that, that sometimes just rub me the wrong way, say, do, whatever it is. I'm learning to love them in the grace of God because you've loved me. So I ask for your help. We ask for your help. And we ask you to forgive us, Lord, where we have fallen down and where we have failed. Father, there's some names and faces that are probably coming to some minds here in the room right now or even online of people. We just, God, we really don't love them. We we may even hate them because of something they said or did or have said and are doing. Father, vengeance is yours. We don't have to deal with that. But we do need to show grace, at least through our prayers. So we may need you to do some work in our hearts, and I pray that you will, and free us, Lord, of our tension, free us of our torment. Help us realize what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.